between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Welcome to Hither Came Conan, the podcast that had to look up what a thoo was, or more specifically the plural, thoos. You know, because it seems to be the single most common noun used in all of Robert E. Howard's Conan tales. For example, here's a sentence from Black Colossus. His manner was slightly affected, but the thoos under his silks were steely. And from the slithering shadow... The chance for life had lent fresh vigor and resilience to the Sumerian's steely thews. Also, from rogues in the house, when he came to, he was in the strongest dungeon in the city, shackled to the wall with chains not even his barbaric thews could break. And finally, my favorite example from Queen of the Black Coast, the rest did not falter. On they came, and like a rain of death among them fell the arrows of the Sumerian, driven with all the force and accuracy of steely thews, backed by a hate hot as the slag heaps of hell. So, yeah, thews. Now, <laughs> one could easily infer the meaning of the word based on how it's used, not just in those four examples, but over and over and over and over and over throughout each of Howard's Conan stories. But since I'm not one to make an ass out of you and me, I performed my due diligence and I looked it up. Thews simply are muscle and sinew. And that's one to grow on. Wow. I kind of let that intro get away from me there. The word you're looking for is... Anyway... <laughs> I'm your host, my name is Steven, and today Conan is accused of murder in what has to be the very first sword and sorcery police procedural. Or not. I don't know. I'm not confident enough to make that claim. Just throwing the possibility out there for each and every one of you. That being said, today we're looking at Conan the Barbarian issue number seven from Marvel Comics. This issue sports a cover date of July. 1971, but it hit the stands in April. It sold for 15 cents, and the title of the story is The Lurker Within. It was written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Barry Windsor Smith, inks by Dan Adkins, and the letters were by Sam Rosen. Into the boat! As our story opens, Conan has been traveling along the Road of Kings and now finds himself within earshot of Numalia, the second greatest city in the kingdom of Numidia. It's many towers just visible in the distance. Suddenly, he hears a cry for help. Looking about in the open grasslands between himself and the city, he spies an overturned chariot attached to a pair of terrified horses, and nearby, a pretty lady beset by a pack of wolves. And by pack, I mean three. Three wolves. Not that, you know, three wolves ain't no big deal. Psh. 
three wolves. What's she screaming about? I mean, what a baby. No, that's not how I meant it. I just mean for Conan, three wolves probably isn't enough to make him break a sweat. And you know what? The barbarian proves me right when he springs into action and putting those steely fuse to work slays one of the wolves with ease before mocking the other two as they run for their lives. The woman, grateful to the barbarian for saving her life, is the Lady Astrius, who commands Conan to drive her back into the city. Conan, having never driven a chariot before, agrees to be her driver, but only so that he can get into the city with a little fuss and bother. Once inside the city walls, as they race through the streets at breakneck speed, they bump wheels with another chariot that's going in the opposite direction. Conan and the other driver stop to yell at each other for a bit, drawing the attention of Dionys, prefect of the city guard, or, in modern terms, a glorified beat cop. Dionys swaggers up between the two drivers to see what's what. Right! Right! What's all this in? When the other man tells Johnny Law that Conan has threatened to kill him, Dionys asks for Conan's license and registration, sticking the point of his spear in the barbarian's face just to show Conan what he'll get if he dares to defy the law. Mr. I am the law. Conan being Conan, well, he knocks the cop on his ass. Before the scene can escalate any further, Lady Astrius intervenes, showing that she's some kind of important person in the city by making Conan's opponents sweat in places that aren't spoken of in polite conversation. With everything settled, sort of, Astrius and Conan take off. Take off, eh? As they continue their way through the city, Astrius tells Conan that the other driver was Callian, the owner of Numalia's House of Relics. She also explains that she's the niece of a governor, that she's in a bit of a pickle, and that Conan might be able to help her out. She takes Conan to a part of the city that overlooks a massively sprawling palatial structure, explaining that this is Callian's House of Relics, which has got to hold treasures inside worth a king's ransom. She then tells Conan that she has racked up a ton of gambling debts, and she's been trying to figure out how to deal with them. One idea she has involves a caravan that arrived in the city just that very morning from Stygia. With the caravan came three men bearing a large and ancient golden bowl, sealed shut with an ornate lid. The three men had taken the bowl to Callian and told him that it was a gift for Karantes of Hanumar, priest of the godbird Ibis, and that others will be coming tomorrow to take the bowl on the next leg of its journey. But until then, they need a place to store it, and so they asked if, you know, they can do that at Callian's place. Oh, and Astrius just happened to be there when all of that went down. So she heard everything. Well, Callian agrees to hold the bowl, secretly thinking that there must be an invaluable treasure inside and that he might want to get his hands on it. Astrius has the same thought and she wants Conan to break into the House of Relics tonight, open the bowl and bring her what is inside. Conan is intrigued, and so that night, he breaks into the museum and almost immediately finds that Callian is dead and that the golden bowl is empty. Conan is discovered standing over the body by Eris, a watchman at the House of Relics, who quickly summons the guard. 
Dionys of the Guard arrives with some of his men, as well as Demetrio, chief inspector and cosplayer who specializes in looking like Fandral from the Thor comics. While Dionys is ready to arrest Conan for the murder, Demetrio isn't so sure, and so he begins his investigation and interrogation. Soon Astrius arrives on the scene and she wastes no time in blaming Conan for the murder. Suddenly, a horrified scream cuts through everything as a broken, maddened, and dying Era stumbles out of an adjoining room. The others rush into the locked room and find it in shambles. A golden mask on the wall with snakes for hair compels Astrius to approach it before the mask, in reality the face of the man-serpent, bursts from the wall and attacks. Demetrio and Astrius are killed, and as Conan fights the creature, he realizes that the Stygians must have discovered this god in the bowl and sent it to destroy the priest of Ibis, a plan ruined when Callian peeked inside the bowl and released the man-serpent. Conan finally bludgeons the monster to death and then steals a look inside the bowl, only to see the frightening image of Thothamon staring back at him. As the issue ends, Conan flees the city. The moral of the story? Well, greed saves lives. I mean, if Callian hadn't been greedy, then he wouldn't have opened the bowl, and it would have made its way to Hanumar, where the man-serpent would have killed indiscriminately, which it started to do here in Numalia, and would have continued doing so if Conan hadn't been there to stop it. And why was Conan there? Because Astria sent him to steal what was in the bowl, thinking that it was treasure because she was greedy. Greed conquers all, people. And that's one to grow on. Okay, so this story was based on The God in the Bowl by Robert E. Howard. And before I get into my thoughts about the issue, I'd like to talk a bit about that original tale. And I have a lot to say, so this may take a bit. Are you ready? Then we'll begin. So in total, Robert E. Howard had written 21 complete Conan tales before he took his own life on June 11th, 1936. Now, that's not including any Conan stories that he'd yet to finish and that were later found, completed, and then published after his death. I just wanted to make that clear. I mean, I'm bound to get stuff wrong. In fact, I can pretty much guarantee it. And when I do, I, I need you all to email me and let me know. But I don't want emails that are caused because I didn't make something clear. Are we clear? Anyway, of those 21 completed Conan stories, 17 were bought for publication by Weird Tales magazine while Howard was still alive. And when I say bought, I only mean that I'm sure that there was intent to pay Howard for his work, probably. But in the end, it looks like he was having a bit of a difficult time getting all of the money he was owed by the magazine, which may have been a factor combined with the declining health of his mother that contributed to his suicide. And I don't know, maybe I'll get into all of that on a later episode, but not today. Anyway, all 17 of those stories were published in Weird Tales magazine, 16 of them during Howard's lifetime between 1932 and 1935. The final tale, Red Nails, was published in three parts, also in Weird Tales magazine, beginning in July of 1936, the month after Howard's death. 
The other four Conan tales beyond the 17 I just talked about were lost until 1951 when the God and the Bull, along with two others, the Black Stranger and the Frost Giant's daughter, were found by writer L. Sprague de Camp, buried in a box owned by Oscar J. Friend, writer and literary agent. Friend had gotten a hold of the box following the death of Otis Klein, who had been Howard's literary agent from 33 to 36, then the agent for Howard's estate following Howard's death and remained the agent of the Howard estate until Klein died in 1946. So talking about those three stories, The Black Stranger was among the last of the Conan stories that Howard wrote. When it had been rejected by Weird Tales, he rewrote the story, replacing Conan with Terence Volmia, a.k.a. Black Volmia, a swashbuckling pirate. This new tale, called Swords of the Red Brotherhood, was then submitted to Golden Fleece magazine and was accepted, but the magazine went out of business before the story could be published. The Frost Giant's Daughter was among the first Conan stories that Robert E. Howard wrote, which he had submitted to Weird Tales back in 1932, along with The Phoenix on the Sword. While The Frost Giant's Daughter was rejected by the magazine, The Phoenix on the Sword was published in their December 1932 issue and holds the distinction of being the first Conan story to see publication. Or, in comic book terms, The Phoenix on the Sword is the first appearance of Conan of Sumeria. Well, after Weird Tales rejected the Frost Giant's daughter, Howard gave it a bit of a rewrite. He changed the name of the main character from Conan to Amra, and it was then published in the March 1934 issue of Fantasy Fan Magazine under the title The Gods of the North. The God and the Bull, which is what we're talking about here, right? It was also among those early Conan stories that Howard had submitted to Weird Tales. He submitted it shortly after The Phoenix on the Sword and The Frost Giant's Daughter. However, it was also rejected, and while Howard continued to work on it, he never resubmitted it for publication. When the three stories were found by DeCamp in 1951, DeCamp, for some reason, rewrote them extensively. I mean, he kept them as Conan stories, but I guess he thought he could improve on them. DeCamp's version of The God and the Bull was first published in Space Science Fiction Magazine in September of 1952, then again in the hardback collection, The Coming of Conan, in 1953 through Gnome Press, then again in the paperback collection simply called Conan from Lancer in 1968. The original Robert E. Howard version of The God and the Bull didn't see publication until 2002 in the collection. Robert E. Howard's Conan of Sumeria, Volume 1, From Wandering Star. This is the version I have. Actually, I have the audiobook, which is read by Todd McLaren, who doesn't know how to pronounce Sumerian, which drove me crazy. Throughout this entire audiobook, which I'm not quite done yet, he pronounces it Cimmerian. Hither came Conan the Cimmerian. And apparently there's two other volumes that he does the same thing in. And to just go on a tangent for a minute, I don't understand how something like that happens. Is there no quality control when these audiobooks are made? Is there not somebody who knows, you know, like an editor or something that could say, uh, 
Buddy, it's actually Sumerian, not Cimmerian. The Cimmerian. Apparently, there's not somebody like that, or at least not for this book, because, yeah, Cimmerian. He kept saying it over and over and over. And yet, at one point, he actually calls Sumeria, Sumeria. And yet, Cimmerian drove me absolutely crazy and will probably continue to drive me crazy as I continue with those audiobooks. Anyway, something that I learned real quick when I was doing all this research is that when it comes to Conan, El Sprague de Camp is like a very polarizing figure in the Conan fandom. I mean, all right, so those Lancer paperbacks, right? Well, if you weren't around at the time, then what you need to understand is that Lancer and then Ace Books they published a total of 12 volumes, which were reprinted numerous times throughout the 70s and the 80s. And at least eight of those volumes had covers by Frank Frazetta. And well, it's those books, along with the Marvel comics, that really brought Conan to the masses. I mean, look up those Frank Frazetta covers sometime because they are gorgeous. In fact, those first two volumes, Conan and Conan of Sumeria, were in my house growing up. I don't know if my dad bought them or if it was my older brother, but I remember those books being in the house. And the crazy thing is, thinking back, I don't know that I ever read them. I mean, all this time living in the same house with those two Conan books with gorgeous, gorgeous covers, and at the same time watching Conan the Destroyer over and over and over, and also having a great love for reading, I don't know why I never read either of those books back then. Uh, I mean, I was a pretty stupid kid. Anyway, for some within the Conan fan community, well, they love those Lancer books. They were the books that got them into Conan. In fact, Roy Thomas, his first few Conan books that he ever bought were these Lancer books. But for Howard purists, El Sprague de Camp is basically Satan. He's the very face of evil because he just took it upon himself to rewrite a bunch of those stories. And for those that were found that were just story fragments or, you know, a synopsis for a story, that makes sense. But for him to take a story like The God and the Bull, which was a complete story, for him to just rewrite it, once that was kind of discovered, I guess, the like I said, the Howard purists were really, really upset about that. For me, I mean, honestly, I, I don't really care. A good story is a good story, and it's not like DeCamp stole the stories from Howard, rewrote them, and then claimed them as his own. I mean, I don't think he ever tried to hide the fact that he rewrote them. What's funny, though, now that there has been this Howard renaissance, you know, with these newer collections that contain only Howard's original stories, because once it was kind of, you know, once it became kind of general knowledge that all, well, not all, but a lot of these Howard stories that were in these Lancer slash Ace books and whatnot had been rewritten by L. Sprague de Camp. There was this concerted effort to gather these 21 Robert E. Howard stories in their original form and publish them that way. But now that they've done that and they've been doing that since 2002, these old Lancer books, I guess they're very hard to get a hold of. And if you have them, if you have even one of them, they're worth some cheddar. So keep that in mind. Anyway, I know that that was a lot, but I love talking about this stuff. So that's what I'm going to do when I get the chance. Speaking of which, let's get back to the comic book. 
shall we? By the way, um, I know I said that there were four lost stories, and I've only mentioned three, the Black Stranger, the Frost Giant's daughter, and of course, the God and the Bull. If you're curious what the fourth one is, it is the Veil of Lost Women, which doesn't come up for quite a while in Conan the Barbarian, not until like issue number 104. But I do want to talk about this story at some point in some point soon, because good Lord, that is one racist story. And, and, and I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about it and I want to talk about it. So yeah, I'm probably going to do that at some point in the near future. Enough talk. Okay. So the God in the bowl has to date a total of two comic book adaptations. The first is of course the issue we just talked about Conan the Barbarian number seven from Marvel comics published in April of 1971, which is titled The Lurker Within. The second adaptation is Conan issues 10 and 11 from Dark Horse. Both of those issues were written by Kurt Busick with pencils by Carrie Nord, inks by Thomas Yates, letters by Richard Starkings, and the colors were by Dave Stewart. And they were published in November and December of 2004. The Marvel version takes way more liberties with the story, while the Dark Horse version is more or less just a straight-up adaptation. They take everything in the story, and they just make a two-issue comic book about it. So with that said, let's talk about the differences between the comic book adaptations and the original Robert E. Howard story. And to be honest, there really are no differences when you compare the Dark Horse version and the original. So. Instead, let's focus on how the Marvel version, The Lurker Within, differs from the other two, The God and the Bull. One big difference is the pacing and the way that each version of the story unfolds. In God and the Bull, which I should say at the outset is one of my favorites, it might even be in my top five Robert E. Howard original Conan stories. Keep in mind, however, that I've read just 12 of the 21 so far. But if we were starting with number five, I'd go God in the Bull, The Scarlet Citadel, People of the Black Circle, Rogues in the House, and The Phoenix on the Sword. That being said, The God in the Bull is very low on action. It's mostly Conan being angry while the Chief Inquisitor Demetrio asks questions as he investigates the murder of Callian Publico. It's great stuff. It really is. And it practically oozes this creeping fear when we finally meet the titular God. The Lurker Within, however, takes a different approach. Both versions are, in essence, a locked room mystery. But where the God and the Bowl is this slow build of an interrogation that culminates in this swift explosion of horror and violence, the Lurker Within packs in more action and story to try and entertain the average comic book reader. The God in the Bowl takes like what appears to be this typical detective story only placed inside of a fantasy setting and the ending kicks all of that in the ass. But all right. So before we get into all that, both versions of the story have this character in it by the name of Astrius. In The Lurker Within, we meet Astrius right away. She's the woman Conan saves from the pack of wolves in the opening of the story the niece of the governor who then convinces Conan to break into Callian's temple and to steal the mysterious sealed bowl, which just has to contain something super valuable 
which she wants so that she can cash in and pay off all of her gambling debts. In God and the Bull, Asdrius is a dude who doesn't come into the story until very near the end. And while, yeah, he's hired Conan to break into Callian's temple, it's not to steal the mysterious bull. It's actually to steal some sort of diamond goblet or something like that. In fact, we don't even learn of this mysterious bull until Callian's clerk, Primero, is brought in and he tells us all about it. In The Lurker Within, it takes Conan seven pages before he's inside Callian's temple or the House of Relics. And that's after meeting Astrius outside the city, saving her from wolves, driving her back into the city in her chariot, meeting Callian within seconds of driving into the city, meeting Dionys, the bully cop, within seconds of bumping into Callian, and then learning about the bull and how it got into the city and why he should break in and steal it. In God and the Bull, Conan's inside the temple from the get-go, having never met Callian nor Dionys before stumbling across the corpse and having the cops called on him. And then, before each version of the story ends, we learn that the mysterious bull was sent by the evil Stygian sorcerer Thothamon. Conan and the others discover that the bull, once sealed, has been opened and now stands empty. Astrius shows up at the temple and betrays Conan, a creepy giant man-headed snake creature thing, which was probably what had been in the bull, makes its presence known. Astrius is killed. The cops flee from the temple in terror, and Conan then kills the creepy giant man-headed snake creature thing before he, too, gets the hell out of Dodge. It's just that each version does it all a bit differently. In The Lurker Within, Conan and the others find the bull, once sealed, standing open and empty. Astrius shows up at the temple and betrays Conan. The man-serpent, a.k.a. the creepy giant man-headed snake creature thing, which was probably what had been in the bull, makes its presence known and goes after Astrius. Demetrio steps in to try and protect her, but the man-serpent kills both Demetrios and Astrius. Uh, Dionys and the other cops flee in terror, and then Conan battles the man-serpent for 14 panels spread across almost three full pages until at last the man-serpent is dead. Conan then looks inside the bowl. He sees the face of the Stygian sorcerer Thothamon, which fills the barbarian's heart so full of fear that he runs from the temple, jumps into a chariot, and gets the hell out of Dodge. In The God and the Bull, after Conan is discovered with the body of Callian Publico by the Night Watchman Eris, and after Demetrio arrives with Dionys and the other cops and begins interrogating Conan and Eris regarding Callian's murder, Callian's clerk is brought in to see what he knows. The clerk is the one who then reveals to everyone that Callian had agreed to have this great sealed bowl held in his temple. It was sent from Stygia as a gift for Calanthes, the priest of Ibis, and that Callian had come to the temple that night to examine it, thinking that it held a great treasure within. Conan and the others soon find the bowl open and empty before the clerk discovers the symbol of Thothamon carved into the bottom of the bowl, which freaks the clerk out because it must mean that the bowl was sent by the sorcerer. 
Astrius, who again, in the God and the Bull, is a man, is found creeping about outside the temple, and he's brought inside by a couple of the cops so that Demetrios can question him. Demetrios, however, recognizes him as the city governor's nephew. Astrius claims that he was on his way home after a night on the town and that he was walking in the open air to clear his head from drinking a bunch of wine. Then, when Astrius notices the body of Callian Publico and asks about it, Dionys tells him that Publico was murdered and that Conan is the one who did the deed. See, even though Demetrios doesn't quite believe that Conan is guilty, Dionys is a bully who lacks the gift of rational thought. And once the idea that Conan is the murderer is put inside his tiny brain, he refuses to accept any other possibility. Well, in God and the Bull, Astrius agrees with Dionys, stating, A vicious-looking brute. How can any doubt his guilt? I have never seen such a villainous countenance before. Well, Conan has something to say about that. This is the point in the story where Conan, who has already admitted that he had been hired to steal this diamond goblet, reveals that it was Astrius who had hired him and that Astrius was creeping about outside the temple because he was waiting for Conan to bring him his prize. Furthermore, Conan announces that he never would have narked the dude out had Astrius not dealt Conan so dirty just now. Conan then demands that Astrius admit to the truth because the dude is still Conan's alibi and can testify to the fact that Conan wasn't yet inside the temple by the time that Callian had been murdered. Astrius, however, claims to not know who Conan is and that he must be a madman who should be punished for his crime. Well, <laughs> in what has to be the single best moment of the story, Conan drops his head in resignation as if he's given up. He has accepted his fate. And this causes all of the other folks in the room, the cops and whatnot, and Demetrio, to kind of relax a little bit. Because up to this point, again, Conan has just been angry. They, they've let him keep his sword. And anytime an accusation is thrown his way, he threatens to cut somebody's head off or split their skull and blah, 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 blah. So as, as soon as this Astrius guy does not help out Conan in any way, everybody thinks that Conan is just going to flip out. And so when he just hangs his head in resignation, everybody kind of relaxes. There's kind of like this almost audible sigh in the room. They're all like, ah. And then before anybody can so much as blink, he suddenly pulls his sword and in a flash of steel cuts the head from the top of Astrius's body. It was a pretty awesome moment. And it's at that point, of course, that all hell just breaks loose and Conan starts sticking everybody until the creepy giant man-headed snake creature reveals itself. Demetrios and the others uh, who survive Conan's murderous rampage, they flee in terror before Conan, quick as a whistle, just lops the thing's head off before he too gets the hell out of Dodge. And so, yeah, there are some basic similarities between the Lurker Within and the God and the Bull. It's just that the Lurker Within is more kind of nonstop action, whereas the God and the Bull kind of 
lulls you in to this police procedural thing before quickly doling out the action and then just as quickly ending. So with all that said, looking back on both the adaptations, I have to say that the Dark Horse version is my favorite. Not only does it look better, it is beat for beat a accurate retelling of The God and the Bull, which as far as I'm concerned is a, is a much better story than The Lurker Within. The God and the Bull, the the original Robert E. Howard story was the third Conan story that he wrote before he'd really put much down on paper in regard to the world in which Conan lives, which is the essay that would soon become the Hyborian Age. And that means he didn't quite have everything in regard to either the character or the setting quite nailed down in his head before he began writing. But really, there's not a lot there to allow much of exactly who Conan in a, is, you know, as a person. There's, there's not enough there really for that to come through. Not, not any real opportunity in this story for character growth. And yet, there are certain traits that he gives Conan that sticks with the character throughout the rest of his stories, or at least the ones I've read so far. First and foremost, of course, Conan don't take no shit from nobody. Second, Conan does have a moral code, though some could probably argue that it's a bit bent. But when Astria shows up and basically betrays Conan, it's made pretty clear that Conan would never have given him up as an accomplice. And yet the moment Astrius calls Conan out, well, Conan lops his head off despite being outnumbered by the cops. I mean, this is a guy you want to be friends with. If you're loyal and true, Conan would probably die fighting an army to defend you. Cross him, however, and you might as well just jump off a cliff. We also learn just how dangerous Conan can be. Of course, we knew that already. That is, if this wasn't our first Conan story. But once again, he's outnumbered at least two to one. And yet, when he kills Astrius, it's pretty clear that had the god in the bowl serpent thing not interrupted him, he probably would have killed all the cops or at least killed some and wounded the rest. And then he would have just strolled away and gotten on with his life. The dude just exudes violence and death, which here, let me share you my favorite line from the original story. This is at a point where Demetrio raises his voice to Conan one too many times and calls him a liar. The Sumerian laid his hand on his sword hilt, and the gesture was as fraught with menace as the lifting of a tiger's lip to bare his fangs. That's some powerful stuff. One sentence, 28 words, in which Conan simply puts a hand on his sword hilt, but it's a gesture that screams volumes. Now, having said that, let's get back to the Marvel Comics issue, because there are a few moments in The Lurker Within that I really enjoyed and I wanted to point out. On the splash page, the narration refers to the city of Numalia as the second greatest city of Numidia, the second greatest Hyborian kingdom. Now, I assume that the first greatest Hyborian kingdom is Aquilonia, the kingdom that Conan will one day rule. But I have no idea what the first greatest city in Numidia is. However, if I had to guess, I figure that the first greatest city is Hanumar, only because it's where Corinthians, priest of the godbird Ibis, lives, and of course, where the golden bull was meant to go. Oh, and here's an odd fact. 
Carenthes is spelled with a K in the lurker within, but with a C in the God in the Bowl, which, yeah, is kind of odd. I, I don't know why Roy Thomas made that change. And frankly, reading his Barbarian Life book about all of these Conan issues, he he has he doesn't remember why he did that either. And you know what? Speaking of geography, you know, since we were talking about geography just a bit ago. If you look at the map, if you've got the map and you look at it and we chart Conan's progress through these seven issues of the Marvel run, it looks like he's traveling in a bit of a circle. So he starts his journey by traveling north from his homeland in Samaria. He goes up to Nordheim, which is where you find Vanaheim and Asgard. From there, he goes into Hyperborea and Berthunia, and that's where he is involved in the war between these two nations in the Grim Grey God story. I I now can't remember what that's called off the top of my head. He then travels south into Zamora, where in the last issue, he was in Shadazar. But then he would to get to Nemedia, he crosses through the kingdom of Corinthia. And he's traveling west at this point. So he's kind of gone north and then east and then south and then southeast and now west again to Numidia, which is practically right under Samaria. So I'm not sure why he's traveling in that circle, but that's what he's doing so far. Back to the comic. I also enjoyed the moment in the issue when Conan breaks into the temple or the House of Relics. And almost immediately finds himself face to face with a stuffed elephant. But due to the darkness, Conan mistakes the taxidermied pachyderm for Yag Kosha, the alien elephant god from the Tower of the Elephant back in issue number four. I thought that that was a great callback. And per Roy Thomas, uh, he's fairly certain that Barry Windsor Smith came up with that idea by himself. There's also this moment with Eris. See, in both versions, Eris is sent off to investigate a particular room, and he comes back after having borne witness to the god in the bowl. In the original story, I think he says something to the effect of the god has a long neck. But the the lurker within version, the panel that shows him laying on the ground with this look of horror, terror on his face, it is super creepy. And it's Maybe one of my favorite panels, even of even if I look at the Dark Horse version, is probably my favorite panel among any panel of of both both versions. Uh, The last thing I wanted to say about the Marvel version here is that I rather enjoyed the reveal of the Man Serpent over how it was done in the Dark Horse version. Both have this masked face appearing above a screen. The Marvel version is meant so that uh, the, the way it's put together is that you're meant to see this masked face with snakes as hair and think that it's part of the wall, like it's a, a wall ornament or a sculpture of, of, of some something like that. And it looks super creepy. It's pretty creepy in the Dark Horse version, but I, I feel like it's it's way more creepy in the Marvel version, for some reason, there's just something about seeing that masked face there above the screen, how the way Barry Windsor Smith draws it, it's almost like it's just part of the background. You, you may not even notice it at first. And it's 
it's super creepy. But all in all, I did enjoy the Dark Horse version better. Uh, I do, however, understand why Roy and Barry made so many changes when they did their version. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that it was a it, it was a single issue. It was, you know, these were all at, at the time, these 70s Conan books, they were one and done issues. And they had to fit this story into one issue. And they had to do it in such a way that folks who were reading Marvel comics or comics in general were kind of used to when it came to a a comic book story. And had they spent most of the issue with all these dudes just standing around talking, it would have been fairly boring. And I mean, really, the the two Dark Horse comics, I'll be honest with you, while, while I did enjoy that version better, I think if I had been buying those issues at the time, I may have been a little annoyed that I spent so much money on two issues in which 80% of the combined story, not a lot happens, or just standing around discussing the case, basically. But Roy and Barry had to do it a certain way, and I, I totally get it. They had to keep readers interested throughout the entire story. You know, they, they had to tell a, a, an entertaining story within those 20 pages, and I think they, they pulled it off. I, I did really enjoy the issue. It's probably one of my favorite of the seven so far. I don't know that I would be willing to sit down and rank them at this point, but I just like the Dark Horse version better. How about you? Let me know. Stephen or else at gmail.com. So this is the point in the show where maybe I would probably have listener feedback. I don't really have any this time around. So I'll just leave you with what I have at this point, which is what you, what you just listened to. And then I'll just ask you to make sure that you join me here next time when I will be talking about, well, it should be Conan the Barbarian issue number eight, which is entitled Keepers of the Crypt. But I wanted to ask you all something. Issue number one of the new Conan the Barbarian series from Titan lands on July 26th. I have pre-ordered the issue and I'm definitely going to be reading it. I'm really looking, really looking forward to it. And so I just want to ask you guys, do you want me to spend an episode each month talking about the new series one issue at a time? I, I'm asking because I'm kind of on the fence about it. I kind of want to, but the... ADHD neurodivergent part of my brain doesn't want to because then it's going to bust up the flow of me talking about this series one issue at a time. So for the time being, I'm going to plan on talking about issue number eight from 1971 in the next episode. But if I get a lot of responses from all y'all saying that, yes, you want me to talk about the new series as well, then maybe in the next episode, I'll talk about the free comic book day issue instead. Or maybe I'll still talk about issue number eight and then talk about the free comic book day issue in episode number nine. So let me know, stevenorelse at gmail.com. Until then, folks, keep them swords close by and never stop treading them jeweled thrones. Bye. 
Hither Came Conan is a Stephen or Else production. Find more podcasts at stephenorelse.com. Questions and comments can be directed to stephenorelse at gmail.com. Find me online at Twitter, Spoutable, and Instagram by searching for at Stephen or Else. And join my newsletter, Stephen Says Stuff, at list.justanotherfanboy.com. This is a free substack where I will send every single podcast episode I host right to your inbox the morning that they are released. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to give you and your fellow patrons podcast episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate this show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. Many wars and feuds did Conan fight. Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. Hello and welcome to Hither Came Conan, the podcast that I run out of breath within seconds of starting the show. Because <laughs> it seems to be this... <laughs> Fart head looking about in the open grasslands between... I just want to punch myself in the face because I cannot read the script that I wrote today. Looking about in the ocean, in the ocean of stupidity coming out of Stephen's face because it's not ocean, it's open. Conan having never... Conan and the other driver stop to yell at each other for a bit, drawing the attention of Dionysus. Blah, 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 blah. Dionys. Dionys. Conan and the other drivers stopped to yell at each other for a bit, drawing the attention of Dionysus. Flop, flip. I'm going to have a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, I can't even say that I'm going to have a lot of problems with the word Dionysus. See, I, <laughs> oh dear Lord. Dionys. 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 Where you coming from, Dionys? Why you looking to me that way, Dionys? There, that that should do it. Let's try it again. Dionys of the guard arrives with son of his men. Dionys of the guard arrives with... Oh, so uh, this next bit, this next little part here, if you can, remove it from this area of the episode and put it back somewhere... Before I actually start talking about the comic, you'll, you'll know because you're me. Okay, back to the regular script. Then the hell with you. <laughs> <laughs>